You're listening to the On the Go with VAO News podcast for the week ending December 11th, 2015. Hello and welcome to our weekly recap of the top headlines from this week's daily acquisition news. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Bill Olver, VAO content developer and senior news writer. And I'm Dara Curran, content developer and VAO news writer. Well, first up, we have some good news or what passes for good budget news these days. On Thursday, the Senate passed another short-term continuing resolution that will fund government until December 16th, which would buy a few more days for lawmakers and the White House to hash out appropriations for the rest of the year. The bill went back to the House, which was expected to clear the measure for President Obama's signature. Uh, The president did previously signal he would not sign another short-term CR because he wanted Congress to wrap up its work on 2017 spending by today, but it's unlikely he'll allow the government to shut down right before the holidays. Yes, as we all want them to wrap up their work. Seriously, like another week, I couldn't believe it. But yeah, we don't don't want everybody getting sent home at Christmas time, but gosh. Straighten your stuff out, you guys. Golly. Well, despite the funding uncertainty from Congress's continuing resolution juggling, which we know is frustrating for everyone, the results of the 2015 Best Places to Work analysis are in, and this was the year the federal workforce finally halted a four-year-long slide into increasing disgruntlement and actually posted a modest increase in their satisfaction with their jobs and workplaces. The Partnership for Public Service and Deloitte Consulting developed this annual report, and they conjectured the 1.2-point increase to 58.1 out of a 100-point scale is likely due to the workforce finally recovering from the triple whammy of sequestration cuts, the 2013 shutdown, and the three-year pay freeze that ended in 2014. One interesting thing they did now in this year's survey is examining how agencies compare with each other across six mission areas and looking at job satisfaction in the mission-critical occupations of economists, auditors, HR specialists, contract specialists, and IT and cybersecurity specialists. In the first year measuring anything, it's hard to get a read on what the data actually means, but they did find wide variations in the agency rankings within individual mission areas, and IT and cybersecurity folks, unfortunately, were the least likely to be psyched about their jobs. The Navy has instructed Huntington Ingalls Industries, HII, to get started on a 12th San Antonio-class amphibious transport dock ship. The service awarded HII a $200 million not-to-exceed, undefinitized contract action to order long lead time materials and perform design work. The award triggers a provision in a hull swap agreement between the Navy and its shipbuilders that calls for the concurrent award of a fourth DDG-51 Arleigh Burke-class destroyer to General Dynamics Bath Ironworks, contingent on congressional authorization and appropriation. Meanwhile, General Dynamics is not too happy about the Marine Corps' recent award to BAE Systems and SAIC to each build 16 prototype amphibious combat vehicles. A lot of amphibious vehicles going around here. The firm has filed a protest with GAO asking the agency to examine the award. A decision is due by mid-March. The Corps plans to test both of the resultant prototypes and refine the requirements from there, directing the winning firm to produce just over 200 ABCs by 2020. 
One last defense note, uh, the Congressional Budget Office has released an intriguing report examining what the potential savings would be from converting certain proportions of DOD positions currently served by active duty personnel to civilian positions. Analysts estimated annualized savings of between $3.1 billion and $5.7 billion after a five-year phase-in period is completed, with the variations depending on just how widespread DOD chooses to make such a conversion. This is because service members, of course, cost more than their civilian counterparts, and certain factors, such as duty rotations, actually can make them less effective in certain support functions. And you don't necessarily need a highly trained soldier, let's say, doing your financing or accounting. And because service personnel do rotate in and out frequently, and they offer retire when they have served their term, the conversion could even be done without displacing anyone. So that was quite an interesting read. Relatively painless way for DOD to free up some potentially serious cash. The Department of Homeland Security and General Services Administration have released the RFP for Task Order 2F under the Continuous Diagnostic and Mitigation Program through GSA's Alliant GWAC. The RFP seeks continuing monitoring as a service for more than 40 small federal agencies and calls for the contractor to provide a solution that includes tools, sensors, and integration support services and the use of a secure shared services platform. GSA is taking a two-step approach to reviewing bids with written bids due by January 5th and supplemental and video proposals due by January 14th. On a related note, DHS has awarded Internet Service Provider CenturyLink a contract to provide Einstein 3A network protection services to civilian agencies unable to access the system through their current providers. Einstein 3A monitors networks for suspicious activity and can block specific domain names, filter malicious email, and identify signs of potential hacks. Currently, those services are available only to agencies that purchase their telecommunication services from Verizon, AT&T, or CenturyLink. Agencies connecting to the Internet through other providers are not covered. The new contract will allow CenturyLink to offer 3A to these organizations. Verizon and AT&T will continue to offer the services only to their respective customers. In regulatory news, the Environmental Protection Agency has issued a direct final rule to amend its regulations related to the ratification of unauthorized commitments and to revise the definition of Chief of the Contracting Office. This rule updates approval authorities and levels to align with the FAR and clarifies some procedures. It also modifies the definition of the Chief of the Contracting Office to mean the Office of Acquisition Management Division Directors at Headquarters, Research Triangle Park, and Cincinnati. For purposes of ratification authority only, CCO also includes regional acquisition managers. This direct final rule is effective February 15, 2016, unless adverse comments are received by January 6th in which case EPA will publish a timely withdrawal of the rule in the Federal Register. And finally, following many agencies, the Department of Housing and Urban Development has published a final rule incorporating OMB grant guidance into its regulations. OMB adopted this guidance in December 2013, and in December 2014, it published a joint interim final rule implementing that guidance for all federal award-making agencies. Effective January 6, 2016, this final rule conforms HUD's regulations to OMB's rules with a few minor changes from the joint interim final rule. I think we need to develop shorthand for that <laughs> and say, like, Everyone's remember, remember that thing that OMB put out about grants? Okay, now Agency X has put that into place, and we'll all Ditto. know what we're talking about. So. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto. 
So as typically happens around the holidays, the federal acquisition news flow has been a little erratic. Not always a ton happening out there. So we don't really have a major discussion theme tonight. More like our kindergarten show and tell process where we each found something interesting. So what did you bring to share with the class, Bill? Yes, um, news does tend to be fairly quiet. Um, occasionally, OMB sneaks out some guidance, but generally, it's a, a slow time for any big announcements or events, um, notwithstanding the government shutdown. Not Ugh, cross fingers. Yeah, forget it. Uh, uh, there was something from last week I thought was notable, uh, something that could trigger, trigger some thought or debate. Uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee held a hearing to discuss ideas for defense acquisition reform, and the hearing featured only private sector witnesses. Uh, of course, some were former defense officials um, who brought up the usual ideas, uh, buying commercial, increasing competition, more training. Uh, but one witness said something I thought was very interesting. Uh, the witness was retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dan Ward, now a, a consultant and also an author of a few books on innovation and change management. And Ward suggested that financial constraints can actually encourage innovation. Uh, he said when people have fewer resources, they tend to exhibit more creative behaviors. Uh, in small teams with short schedules, tight budgets, and a commitment to keeping things simple will consistently outperform large teams who pursue complex projects and uh, and take their time working on something. Uh, Ward said that budget and schedule constraints will foster creativity uh, by encouraging teams to uh, you know, look past the status quo and look for an alternative approach. Uh, it forces teams to prioritize and restrict requirements, uh, can reduce the risk of changing requirements, and increase the likelihood that your project will deliver capabilities while they're still relevant. We all know IT changes fast, so the faster you're getting the product out, uh, the faster you know you're actually getting relevant capabilities out to your to your folks. Um, it also encourages speed and increases the chances of delivering ahead of schedule. You know, Ward said there are cultural challenges to this approach. Um, you know, there's there's a mindset in government that bigger is better, complex is better, large budgets and lengthy timelines are prestigious. Who wants to work on a weenie project when you can have the big toy <laughs> at the end of your at the end of the day? Um, and you know, program offices. Also, when they bring in projects early or under budget, they lose that money that they save. Uh, and often that money is given to a project uh, that is overspending because they're out of out of cash. Now, Ward made some recommendations for, for changing this mindset, um, but I thought just the idea itself was worth talking about. And in part because it reminded me of something uh, that Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, Frank Kendall, has said, and it contradicted it a little slightly. Um, it was things that he has said about cost overruns on big defense projects. And this, this was a few months ago. Uh, Kendall released an analysis of major defense programs uh, going back to 1970. Uh, they, they, they did a fairly deep dive on, on major defense acquisition programs, and they found that a strong correlation existed between tighter budgets and greater cost growth. Right. And of 153 uh, major defense programs launched since 1970, 40 had unit cost growth of 50% or more, and 36 of those 40 programs were started under a tight budget environment. Now, Kendall said that more work was needed to get to the underlying causes there, but he did speculate that during lean times, programs budget optimistically. 
They want their programs to be approved, to be funded. They want to receive continued funding, so they short their estimates. Um, when times are good, when the purse strings aren't so tight, program budgets are more realistic because there's a greater chance the funding will come through. There might be less hoopla. So um, less uh, less overspending and more it's an issue of underestimating. Yes, yes. In theory. He, he, In theory, they, right. they, they want to do a deeper dive on that, but that's – yeah, that that was one thing that mm-hmm. uh, that Mr. Kendall had speculated on. And I, I thought that was a very interesting contrast. You have one analysis saying that a tight budget creates an environment for overruns, and an observer saying that fiscal constraints are better for innovation and savings. And I, you know, I don't. The more I think about it, though, I don't really think they're mutually exclusive ideas. I mean, when I when I when I first first read the testimony, it kind of struck me that it was the opposite of what Kendall was saying. Um, but I but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, one is budgeting and appropriations, and the other is project development and spending issue. Um, and of course, it would certainly be possible to constrain your project spending, even if it's fully funded. Right. And, you know, <laughs> you don't an have idea. to spend it all at once. Um, and I think it, it made me think of agile development, which we talk about constantly on the podcast. And that's a good example of an approach that could combine these two apparently opposing ideas. You know, you might get fully funded for your project, but maybe you're better off spending in smaller pieces, forcing your team to prioritize your requirements and look for faster and better ways to deliver them if you're just doing it at a piece at a time and not looking at your full funding funded project. Definitely. And it's less likelihood of the snowball kind of rolling out of control, too, if you, you know, you're just, you have a little, little thing that you're dealing with kind of to begin with. And, you know, I wonder if it's a question of really, you know, are you expecting somebody is going to bail you out if you overrun your, your program? Because, you know, I'm sure all of us like post-college or whatever, right after we moved out, you know, it's, you're eating your ramen, you're finding a way to creatively... (laughs) Make your right. ends meet, and if there's nobody there to you know bail you out because it's like oh my gosh you know no grocery money until payday and uh, I got you know, five days and you know one box of noodles, um, but you know it's that's I don't know if it's always that way with federal programs they do need to come up with a solution though to the oh oh you have excess well we're just going to take that away from you <laughs> like that is a yes. huge problem they need to yes. find some way to incentivize that because that would definitely reverse a lot of a lot of stuff so that, that was one thing Ward. Um Ward suggested was, you know, allowing programs to keep a portion, even if it was just 10 percent. You know, you, you come in $100,000 under budget, you can keep ten grand or something, you know, some way of creating an innovation fund. I mean, a couple of others, I wouldn't be surprised if something happened in the next few years because it, it, is, a, it is an issue. Um, you know, there, there is no incentive to save money when you just lose it and you can't use it for other things in your office. Mm-hmm. Um, it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if there was something it's, – it's come up too many times recently in the last year or two. Um, so, yeah, I think it, that might be coming down the pike. Hmm. Okay, so I was kind of interested in this commentary I saw on shared services. Now, right now, my personal opinion is shared services. It's obviously a good idea in theory, but I do think there are a couple of key things that need to be figured out. One is how these cooperative things are going to be funded for the long term. And two, how you address customization. You have a bunch of different agencies with different needs. Who exactly is going to be asked to compromise on having things done the way they want them? And so where is the agreeable middle ground with that? This commentary was asserting that 
technology is actually making it easier than ever for shared services to get more of a fair shake in the federal sphere. You've got cloud now, right? Everybody is basically going to have equal access to their info through this service because it's virtual. There are various things that get into more technology than we normally delve into, like API and open source code. It gets a little mysterious, but basically it makes it easier for the different software and applications to work together and to be compatible with each other. And now you have this thing they're calling composable services. It's basically like options on a new car. I had to look this up because I had no idea what this was, new jargon. <laughs> um, so um, think of it as you could basically customize a new car with the things you want. You could get a backup camera if you want, and Bluetooth technology, so you can talk to people through your dashboard, and collision avoidance systems, and all sorts of bells and whistles are available if you want them. But everybody who buys a new car is still at least going to get this device for transportation, right? That's the same idea as composable services. They break tech down into these little blocks, and you can just pick what you want from that menu. Interesting. So that bridges the challenge to customization for agencies agreeing on what are we going to have the shared service look like. That's always been a sticking point. Everybody gets the car or let's say it's maybe your payment system. Some people are going to be like, yeah, pay my bills. Thanks. But other people want to be able to maybe log in with their mobile phone and pull up and review specific invoices or something. Right. The bells and whistles. So with that in mind. It's maybe now more logistically possible than ever to keep participants happy, the commentary says. And this was three folks from an organization at IBM. And they further proposed, you know what, you guys really are just not thinking big enough yet about this. It can be a beneficial thing, really beneficial when everybody is using it. Suppose it's government-wide. For example, Denmark has a single login that serves as a gateway for all the citizens to get into the entire spectrum of their government agencies. The UK has a similar thing. They have a web portal called gov.uk, very uh, logically named, that has more than 400 shared services. And oh, by the way, savings from using that portal are up to about three quarters of a billion dollars to date. Now, yes, there are a ton of considerations about how to make it all work, especially if you're not currently positioned for that. Uh, but what if the routine support task every agency has, these Go to like a new agency, like OPM, for example. I am sure those guys would have been very happy to just focus on their personnel stuff. And if there was a minister of cybersecurity or ministry of cybersecurity who had been handling all their patch it up and information security functions for them, right? And then they wouldn't have this horrible data breach, maybe. OPM should be doing their mission stuff. They don't necessarily need to be in the bill paying business or the information security business. Let a different entity handle that for people. And then you use your composable services, right, to make your special tweaks that you need to fit it to your own special mission. But for the most part, they did emphasize you do try to keep these shared services as simple as possible. Your basic car should be the basic car just for efficiency's sake. Um, now, I might use here the example of AT&F and the U.S. Digital Services team. Now, what they've been helping people with, they are so popular. People are, were just clamoring to have them come and help with whatever tech thing it was they were working on. So now individual agencies are developing and launching their own little teams. It's in the image of those original two. And I think that brooks the question. I think that's great overall, but is that the best way to handle it? If you're thinking about the shared services mentality, would it have been something to expand as a shared service? I mean... Now you have all these individual little groups within these agencies. So ideally, you're going to now have a mechanism to transfer over lessons learned and best practices, et cetera, et cetera. If it was the same group, you wouldn't need that. So would it have been more efficient to just grow the original guys in the first place to kind of meet the, the demand of all the different agencies? Hmm. And another thing that ma this makes me think of, um, you know, possible application 
we have all these new cybersecurity requirements that are hastily coming out right now, right? Shore up all the defenses and close the loopholes. One of the big parts of this is threat and incident reporting. If there's a breach, you find somebody, you know, tickling your system to try to find a way in, you send the alarm up. It's like prairie dogs, right? They see a possible predator, they bark, whoop, and now everybody's on alert, okay? So, well, we had an article this week in the news about how small businesses are worried that some of DOD's requirements along this line are way too onerous or expensive for them to get compliant with, and they're worried they won't be able to stay in the competitive pool. I mean, this is DOD we're talking about, right? They want the cyber equivalent of iron doors locked and barred to keep the bad guys out. That's very reasonable. But also, some of the certifications they want, they're kind of hard for a wee little business to get. Um, you know, even when we were talking about FISMA in the past, there's a lot of steps that people have to go through. And, uh, you know, it, it took a while for even a dozen agencies to get certified in that, right? So there's there's still this uphill battle for that. So I was thinking to myself, well, what if you set up a ministry of small business cyber protection, right? All little small business data streams, they run through this one particular route. It's heavily scrutinized. It's heavily protected, ultra secure. They're constantly scanning it for threats. And so fine probably moves a little bit slower with all that scrutiny, but now you haven't had to just inadvertently knock potentially thousands of nimble, creative little entities out of being able to compete to offer you nifty solutions because getting their individual compliance is way too hard. Anyway, okay, in sum, I think what shared services is shaping up to potentially be in the future is a lot different than what it may have been in the past. And this article kind of twigged me into thinking, you know, maybe there's a way to look at it um, both from a different perspective and on a more intriguing scale. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I did look at that, at that commentary and I didn't know what composable services are, so I didn't read it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I, sometimes that tech stuff I, sometimes is, so I see three terms in there that I might have to look up and unless it's on my Kindle where I can poke it and it'll look it up for me, sometimes <laughs> I'm like, uh, forget it. I'm not going to try to translate this, you know? No, that, so. <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting way of, that's an interesting way of scaling it up, making it even bigger, um, than you know, than just like oh, processing your paychecks and things like that, and and also applying it to the private sector. I mean, why shouldn't you know small businesses be able to team, you know, absolutely, and, and, and have a have a process for that? Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, all right. Well, that is it for us for this week. So, if you are a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office website, you can find links to all of this week's headlines that we've discussed for further reading, should you wish it on the same page where you downloaded this podcast. And you can also comment about our podcast. We'd love to have your feedback on the format or content or anything else you'd like to tell us. Thank you for tuning in. Tune in again next Friday, December 18th, for the final news recap of 2015.